Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment, and what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emerging Management Society. So welcome everybody to our roundtable discussion. My name is Kyle King. I'm the Managing Director of Capacity Building International. And uh, again, welcome to our roundtable discussion on climate security and community resilience and exploring the nexus between the two. And so today, um, we're just going to have a, a discussion, a roundtable discussion in terms of this topic. But before we get started, of course, uh, you know, we want to be able to cover a few administrative remarks. And so, you know, of course, uh, mute, unmute, keep yourself muted, of course, if you're going to be joining us or, or you're going to be a panelist. And then this webinar is going to be recorded, so you'll be able to watch it later on. And the link will be shared with you after the event has concluded. And then, of course, the Q&A. You know, that's why we had that set up here, question and answers. If you do have any questions as we go throughout the, the webinar through any for any one of the panelists, then please just go ahead and use the Q&A function. That's the best option there because we're able to also, also capture the questions uh, and the written answers later on in the recording. And so if you have anything such as you can't hear or there's any technical problems or anything else like that we can help you with, you can obviously use the chat feature that's there as well. But most of the time we use the Q&A feature because we're able to see when somebody actually asks the question and it pops up and we're able to address it there. So if you have any other issues, you can drop those in the chat and we'll be monitoring those as well. So before we get started, you know, certainly just let us know in the chat where you're coming from. We have a, a large audience today and we'd like to sort of figure out where everybody's coming from and to see uh, what sort of nations are represented here. So if you just want to go ahead and let us know in the chat where you're coming from, that would be great as well. So before we get started, let's do basically have just a few opening remarks. Now, the, the reason why that climate security has been coming up, at least from one of the uh, perspectives uh, from myself, as, as I look at the climate security and sort of that nexus of national security, is that this is going to be a growing issue with the frequency of storms, hurricanes, and everything else that goes along uh, with what we're seeing, you know, massive uh, blizzards and things like that in, in, in uh, California and everywhere else. You know, this is really something that we're starting to see that's changing the the um, okay, thanks for that on the chat. This is something that we're starting to really see in terms of uh, changing our environmental dynamics, the climate that we live in. And as it comes into emergency management, it comes into crisis management. We look at this in terms of uh, the fact that, um, you know, this is going to be a resource constraint. It's going to change the way we operate. It's going to change that we build communities. It's going to change our overall frame of reference for threats, risks, risks and hazards over time. And one of the examples that I draw upon is some of the, you know, the Pacific Islands and some of these other island nations, which are really losing their entire national identity because of climate change and the impacts of, of that. So what we wanted to do in terms of this roundtable discussion was have some guests join us today and to provide their perspective. So we've got a nice cross-section of guests and panelists today from private sector, from academia and others that are going to provide us with some of their top concerns that they see from within their portfolio and their perspective in terms of climate change and their impacts on communities itself. So when we do that, let's go ahead and get into our experts. And we're going to be 
joined by Dr. Sarah Belligoni and Mr. Paul Turner. So Sarah's from the Postdoctoral Research Associate from Rutgers, Paul Turner, President Executive Director of the Fund for Peace. And then we have, of course, myself and then Master, Mr. Patrick Marchman, who's the Associate Director of Climate Instability at Insure. And so when we, let's just go ahead and turn over to our introductions really quick. And so first, Patrick, over to you. Let's start with you. Yeah. Um, hi. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, so, so I guess, um, can you remind me exactly what you need me, what part of this you need me to address right now? Uh, just a real, oh, sorry, that says Q&A. Let's just go right into the uh, introduction, just a brief overview of sort of the things that you're looking at, and then awesome. we'll go back into sort of the key issues. Awesome. Yeah, good. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so one of the things I've been doing for a long time has been uh, working, is looking into um, what's called managed retreat. There's been a lot of discussions about better ways to brand it, but that's the the phrase that's really come into the vogue. Um, basically, the, the idea, the question of where are people going to go as a result of climate change. Um, it's uh, I started this probably about five or six years ago, and by that time, at that time, it was really curiosity. There was you know articles and you know media, and it was like, look at the poor Alaskan village moving. Now it's becoming something that's becoming very accepted, especially with a lot of the more intense uh, weather events that have happened in the past several years. We're starting to actually see real time some some impacts, not just hypothetical. So I would say in terms of a couple of um, specific areas around this, um, one thing I, I you know, again, I, I, I've been looking into um, working a little bit with some people in Australia um, and New Zealand when it comes to sort of immediate post-disaster relocation and national policy. So um, you might know there's been um, some uh, in the past, you know, six months to a year, there's been some really intense rainstorms in uh, parts of, you know, the eastern part of, you know, Australia, especially Queensland and such. Um, the town of Lismore, which uh, is has been really hammered repeatedly several times. Um, and uh, there's, you know, people are, in a way, I would say Australia and lesser extent, also New Zealand and such are very much ahead of some other places. You know, they are thinking right now, um, we, we got to start moving people. Um, you know, you may not even explicitly use the words climate change, although it's more acceptable there than other places, but they're doing this. They're looking at this because this is a pattern. And, um, you know, there's eventually when you have three floods in three years, it gets almost unsustainable. So, um, you know, I'm working with some people to kind of um, work some strategies with that. Um, also, New Zealand uh, has uh, managed retreat as a part of the national climate adaptation strategy. So I'm starting to make a few you know, uh, contacts there as well to see what we can do there. Um, the other thing I've been thinking of a lot is economic realignments. Now, it's not just sort of the movement of people themselves. And this is more within the, the U.S., but it's thinking in terms of, you know, what the movements of people are going to do in terms of um, changing maybe the demographics, you know, places of more and less population. Uh, in terms of, you know, um, influence, uh, you almost say economic influence. So say, say just a really simple example from Miami to Orlando, um, you know, uh, when people are moving a little bit inland, even within the same state, that can cause just, you know, different um, concentrations of, you know, industry for, for finance, for lots of things, for infrastructure, especially. And uh, that's going to make a real difference in terms of even down to the retail side, who's going to want to site there. So I think, um, this is something that's really kind of at a beginning stage, 
Um, but it's going to become very, very important. I know the Urban Land Institute is thinking about this pretty hard these days. Um, what is that going to actually mean for the places people are going to move? And they not, may not necessarily move to the Great Lakes. They might move, you know, again, somewhere slightly from, say, Houston to Dallas, but it's still going to make a massive, massive um, impact eventually. And also make an impact, frankly, on political, you know, frankly, on politics and a lot of things. And one other thing, a little sub area of that is ports. Now, ports are really interesting in that you kind of have to have a port be on a body of water. That's what they need to do. You need to put a boat in the water. Um, but what, so they are among the most vulnerable areas, airports to a lesser degree as well, because a lot of airports are built on swampy land, cheap land a long time ago. Langley Air Force Base in Hampton, Virginia is a great example. I grew up next to it. It was really low. You can look at um, National Airport at Washington, D.C. You can see it. A lot of places can see this. So what are they going to do? Um, that's a question that's going to have to be faced. I know that there's been some thinking about Norfolk, you know, sort of the Norfolk Naval Base, largest, I think, largest naval base in the world, I think, which again, prime example. And this is going to be something, it's not going to really end as in it's going to rise a foot and then stop. You know, sea level rise, my personal bet is you'll know, probably maybe around nine to 10 feet by 2100. And it's not going to be really steady either. It will start accelerating as time goes on. So how do you really build the infrastructure that's needed for, you know, security, for economics, for lots of things? How do you frankly move a port? The other thing I just want to mention quickly is um, I've you know done a little bit of work in the area of sort of resilience and supply chain. Supply chains were a big deal, you know, during COVID, the end of COVID, um, and now they're kind of people have forgotten a little bit about, about them. Um, I don't think they should, because I think things, especially like the food, how we get the food that we eat, how we get power transmission from place to place, um, as extreme events, just rain bombs, atmospheric rivers just sort of opening up, as they've done in California recently. Um, lots of these things kind of become more and more frequent. Um, you know, it's going to become more and more important to solidify the things that kind of make modern life possible. I think, especially in terms of energy, um, you know, that you can look in terms of maybe more, more microgrids, I think maybe even more regional grids, regional regional ways to make the grid system resilient. Because again, if you're just assuming you're going to have, you know, free and easy power, you know, from a dam 200 miles away, that may be a bad assumption going forward. And so I think that's going to be something that, you know, I'm it's going to be really, you know, kind of is on, on my, uh, on my radar, so to speak. So, um, so thank you. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate that sort of uh, quick overview there. So, Paul, uh, just a quick introduction over to you, and then uh, maybe we'll go ahead and just say some of the top issues that you're looking at these days. Sure. Thanks, Kyle. Um, thanks to Capacity Building International and everybody who's taken some time out of your schedule to join us today. <clears throat> My name is Paul Turner. I work as the president and executive director at the Fund for Peace. Uh, we're a, a small NGO that's based in Washington, D.C. that uh, tries to merge research and practice um, in order to advance uh, issues of peace. And, and obviously, resilience is a key component of that. Um, one of the things that, that we've done in, in the last little bit is to do some research for the U.S. Institute of Peace on um, climate security in sub-Saharan Africa. And then we've also looked at the, the broader resilience uh, challenge um, with some funding from the McGovern Foundation and have recently released an, an index called the State Resilience Index. 
Um, it, it has a, a, a few pillars I'll run through really quickly and then kind of touch on, on kind of what I see as being three key, key challenges moving forward. Um, so in, in terms of the way that, that we're framing resilience, it's what it takes in order to be able to, to manage destabilizing shocks. Um, so whether that's at the individual level, the, the family, community, national, global level, um, globally, we see shocks hitting uh, at, at the case uh, historically at least every 10 years. Um, when you start looking at the country level, it, it tends to be a, a lot more frequent than that in some countries and, and others kind of looking at, at really being swept up into some of those global trends. Um, but the, the pillars that, that we look at are, are challenges around inclusion, social cohesion, uh, state capacity, individual capabilities, economy, civic space, and uh, as is most relevant here, environment and ecology. And we feel like all those combined really help define the realm of resilience when we're looking at a broad cross-cutting framework to be able to understand it. Obviously, when you're looking at a particular sector, they are, are looking at, at specific indicators, but this is meant to be more cross-cutting. Um, and in terms of the, the three issues that, that I think that are, are really significant and, and confronting us that, that we're learning about in some of our work, um, one, uh, I think Patrick's already touched on, and that's the challenges of migration. Um, I, I think there's interesting conversations taking place around climate change and whether or not that is a form of forced migration or not uh, that, that we should continue to look into. Um, another is that in areas of conflict, we're seeing the, the shifting area of operations of armed groups. Um, and somewhat related to that as a third point is the, the changing of people's identities on the ground as they embrace and drop uh, existing grievances or new grievances that are being caused by obviously some of these challenges around climate security. I think for each one of these, obviously, resilience has a, a key role to play. Um, again, kind of across that, that vertical axis, whether we're looking at, at what um, the, the global community is doing all the way down to how individuals are responding. Uh, and I, I think uh, a lot of our our change that we're going to see taking place in the near future, fortunately or unfortunately, is going to really be taking place at the community level as they're as they're being able to, to focus on areas of resilience, trying to, to really become their own agents of change and champions for their own causes um, in order to help mitigate the risk that they're confronting uh, or even even manage some of the challenges that that are already hitting them. Um, thank you so much. And I look forward to the ongoing conversation. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Now, Sarah, over to you. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us and Kyle to invite us. Um, so I am Sarah Belligoni from Rutgers University, New Brunswick, uh, working with the Megalopolitan uh, Coastal Transformation Hub. Uh, effort of multiple um, US and not only US institutions. And we indeed work on uh, climate change adaptations and we do that closely with the with communities. So um, I would say that as, a, as an academic, as a researcher, as someone that I've extensively looked at uh, climate change from different perspectives, from different lenses. So there is this um, right now. There is this focus on uh, considering um, 
climate migrants or even refugees at times called this way as a matter of national security. And I'm glad that also Patrick mentioned that um, indeed, like we are seeing these, uh, this tendency of seeing these massive migrations from um, small state islands, uh, from um, coastal areas um, and framing that as a matter of national security from both like, let's say, um, I would say the United States also, but especially in the Southeast Asia, so Australia, New Zealand, as Patrick was uh, was also mentioning. Um, there are some issues there of, you know, framing uh, climate migrants uh, as a national security potential threat. Uh, and the reason is, mm, both ethical, uh, I would say, um, but also um, there is a, a um, strong uh, um, impact that it can have in the way in which, uh, uh, especially international migrants, then are welcome in the uh, communities that eventually receive them. Um, indeed, um, there is no uh, official um, definition or legal framework that protects climate refugees. So in other, in other words, uh, in the short term, we, we might see them failing uh, within the uh, humanitarian refugees. So we might continuously see um, more countries eventually providing uh, ways for them to, uh, to emigrate uh, below the lenses of being humanitarian refugees. But there is no specific definition as climate refugees. And that's a problem. That's an issue uh, because, of course, the experience of migrants that are migrating in internationally versus eventually domestically, it's much, much different. Um, another um, important point I would like uh, um, to eventually also discuss forward with the audience uh, is about uh, um, the these uh, big frameworks that we have at the international level that, of course, are meant to be more generic, more uh, broad, and perhaps setting goals for countries on how to address the climate crisis and all the effects of that. Um, the United Nations are doing uh, a lot in that, uh, in that regards, and member states are supported uh, in order to move towards achieving those goals. Uh, but as I always say, the regulations are good when they are international, but we need implementation and open additional at the local level, because the uh, the impact that the climate crisis can have on communities in different countries or even different regions and areas within the same country are dramatically different. So, what when we are um, when here at um, at Ruggers we look at uh, the um, households. Uh, drivers and motivations towards migration, uh, looking at the case of communities in New Jersey. Of course, we are looking more at communities that are affected by sea level rise. So we look at whether are there incentives for them to become more resilient to sea level rise. So are there any adaptation measures and incentives to, uh, to make them a reality for them that are being promoted or not? But if we look at other communities, like, for example, we move to Europe, we look at communities affected by these strong heat waves over the summer, then how we look at the phenomenon is completely different. Then we have to look at whether, you know, these heat waves are, you know, are going to be more frequent, uh, stronger, 
um, whether we can create infrastructures, especially for vulnerable uh, groups, uh, to alleviate the effects of these heat waves. Because there, I mean, it's not a matter of making a house more um, more resilient to sea level rise or eventually create, you know, sea uh, barriers or things like that. There is a matter of making sure that elderly people with chronically healed um, diseases might have the chance to have AC at home or go to a cooling center, things like that. So it's, it's very important to keep the regulations, the discussion internationally, make pressures within regional and international organizations so that member states work towards mitigation, because that's a big difference between mitigation and adaptation. But then in the meantime, we have to work more at the local level, local authorities, including emergency managers, policymakers, so that adaptation measures are put in place. Because as much as we can work on mitigation, there is still so many anthropogenic factors that are accelerating how climate changes. And, and we have seen a lot of changes in the characteristics of natural hazards or, um, for example, see hurricanes. When uh, Patrick was mentioning people moving from Miami to Orlando, absolutely. But now what's the problem? Who moved from Miami to Orlando? Now, in September, we have Hurricane Ian, massive flooding in the Orlando area, absolutely not expected because we still classify hurricanes from a wind speed perspective, but climate change is making them more like full of rain. And that's a whole different, you know, mindset we have to have even within the emergency management field. So now I draw a lot of like insights and information, but I'm happy to talk more uh, about that. So thank you so much again. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I, I want to add to that a bit. Uh... So I, I come from the emergency management sort of crisis management background. And I think one of the things, and we actually talked about this earlier, earlier this week, but I think one of the, the challenges that, at least for the emergency management community, is that when we're looking at mitigation and we're looking at other aspects of natural hazards, you know, the, the worse and the, the more intense that these storms are becoming, then there's going to be more of a migration. And there's a sort of this long-term 15, 20-year impact where we already, as first responders, operate in a resource-constrained environment. And so the tax base changes over time, right? And so the more migration, the more the tax base changes, the less response capability you have. And these are all just compounding effects over time of, of, of climate change, right? And so this is something that is, of course, not within our control. It has to be more of a political decision, right, in terms of investment and then sort of changing the communities because everything's, you know, all disasters are local and the impacts are local. And these long-term effects, I think, will just slowly degrade the response capability, the mitigation capability, any sort of prevention that we're trying to put in place. And then, Patrick, you mentioned sort of the infrastructure piece. And I think that's an interesting aspect because we don't really think about completely reframing or revising our infrastructure. You know, you mentioned the airports. I think that's a, that's a great point. You know, we made decisions 50 years ago about where we should place the infrastructure. And there's there's probably not a lot of sort of economic and political will just to sort of uproot and move an entire, like, you know, airport. You know, think in terms of like Chicago O'Hare or something. You know, there's not really a will to sort of make this sort of massive disruption. What are your thoughts on and what are your experiences in terms of infrastructure? Well, well, first of all, I, I want to commend you for mentioning sort of the, the tax base issue, because I think a lot of times 
we we get a little dramatic when it comes to the, the the stories about people moving and and it may seem a little bit mundane to look at that government issue but that is layer but that is 100% that sort of starts a bit of a downward spiral you kind of you lose more of tax base you lose more capability and such i think that's kind of like that's something that a lot of people are 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 looking to see whether that's actually going to going to happen, but it's a, it's a fear of a lot of people. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, about the, the infrastructure, you're you're right. Um, so I've seen, I will say, some airports are thinking more. Again, I'm thinking. So I've done some work, like with some airports around the world. I will say in the U.S., San Francisco Airport is I've put in. Somebody in San Francisco might correct me. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But the figure I've heard somewhere of almost like a billion dollar seawall around it. Um, that seawall is for about two meters, which is better. I, I'm actually, I, I don't think it's going to be adequate long-term, but it's much better than the people who are saying like one meter. Um, so that's good. Um, however, for every San Francisco, San Francisco airport, they have massive amounts of resources. Even then it's going to be a big lift. There's a lot of other places that aren't going to have those resources. Um, the, you know, it is it is going to be very very tricky and and you're right you know it's not just the relocation of the pure fiscal infrastructure although that's important it's the networks of supply of supply lines that go to and from infrastructure the entire point of say another example to look at is sort of the, the port of long beach at los angeles um the port of long beach you can almost see you can visualize the trains of uh, you know, railroads of trucks fanning out across the mass part of North America, right from there. I, you can visualize it. There's people who have, you, who have. When you question, okay, well, what's the long-term sustainability of that? Even if you had to, say, move 20% of the cargo that goes there somewhere else, that's going to be a 20% shift. I mean, some places will benefit, some places won't, but it's going to be a huge thing that, again, will have implications economically, socially, and yes, security-wise. I mean, we we set up our security industries based on a lot of these things. You know, we, you know, we've historically, the United States especially has, you know, distributed the manufacture of sophisticated weapon systems to like every single congressional district possible. You know, that's great politically, but when you're looking at, say, you know, long-term in terms of resilience to extreme weather, that may not be the best thing. You know, if you're looking at, say, several vital facilities are located in ground, like ground zero, literally, of where hurricanes are going to keep hammering and hammering. So the infrastructure pieces, it's it's going to be huge. People are thinking about it, but you're right. Um, I don't think we're at the scale yet. And I think it's it scares me a little bit personally, but, you know, we'll, it'll happen. So, Paul, let's come back to you. You're, so you were working on the, the migration piece. That's obviously one of the, the issues. And, and Sarah, you also, in, in terms of this topic, that's obviously one of the key issues that is coming up quite often in terms of, you know, the climate security piece. And and in terms of if we're looking at Africa, which, you know, Paul, you have a lot of experience in as well. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Like, so what are the key challenges here? And, and, and how do we address um, what Sarah has also mentioned in terms of the lack of, um, if I could say, legal mechanisms to address climate migrants, because it's not a typical sort of uh, migration, you know, issue. It's, you know, they're not coming for, say, employment, for work out of conflict zones or something like that. It's it's actually the loss of a nation and sort of the stability of the nation and, and you know, due to climate security issues. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? 
Maybe let me touch on one or two quick things to, to build into that. And I think yeah, please. Um, some, some really good uh, points were raised around just the, the potential for massive resource requirements as, as we're looking to you know, be able to, to both um, prepare for and respond to some of these security issues. Um, I do think that there's a, a really interesting um, way that, that we might be able to start looking at, at how to mitigate some of, of the challenges. And that is, if we look at a country like Bangladesh and the communities that are there that are regularly hit during monsoon season, it is obviously disruptive to them, but they have over time, you know, built that in into their lifestyle and livelihoods to where they expect to essentially kind of retreat from their home and then return based on their ability to access that. I don't know that that uh, many of us would would uh, welcome such a radical shift in in our lifestyles and livelihoods. But you know there there are obviously some resource requirements there. But Bangladesh certainly isn't talking about building billions of dollars of seawalls across kind of its low lying land lands. Uh, and and there there may be something there that that is just in terms of how we look at at our individual and community fabric you know what what is it that that can help make us to be more flexible so so we're bending and not breaking when those floods hit or when the monsoons hit or the hurricanes or or extreme weather events um but but to talk just a little bit more specifically about migration um so i, I think that that what we've started to see is, as places have become maybe less hospitable to the way people have traditionally chosen to kind of live their lives, they've sought to find new places. Um, and so there are some uh, dynamics that evolve in ways similar to humanitarian crises. So as you have somebody displaced by climate um, and, and they move to a different location, whether that's within the same country or into a, a, a different country, those challenges are not just around that individual, but they're also uh, placing significant stressors on host communities. Um, and so sometimes uh, the... And, and so far, at least from a lot of the, the exposure and research that I've done, uh, we see a lot of integration of, of climate refugees or migrants, which is a little bit different than we might see of, of those that are fleeing humanitarian crises. Um, and so that does make things often a little bit easier to deal with, but uh, in terms of there being major stresses between communities, but it also makes it more challenging to be able to identify the people that need the support and services in order to help them uh, not just integrate in terms of finding a place to live, but to kind of find their footing and then be able to, to move forward and creating a life for themselves and becoming kind of productive and included parts of their communities. Uh, so I, I think that there's some real issues there around migration that are just looking at, at the individuals, how those families are moving around, the choices that are forcing them to, to, to recognize that, that they don't see a viable future in where they have been living and, and trying to identify places that might be, uh, you know, plan B. Um, th those legal networks or frameworks, I think, are going to be really stressed as we move forward, um, in part, not just due to climate change, but due to global trends that we see now uh, that are, are, are really polarizing uh, the, the, the view of, of migration as being something that's negative. Um, uh, in, at times in the past, that's been something that's been welcomed by many countries because it's seen as a part of the, the economic engine and, and really seen as an opportunity for growth and expansion. 
but due to do increasing perspectives of nationalism that we see um, taking place across multiple continents, I think that there are going to be real challenges that climate migrants are facing. Um, and, and we see that starting to appear a, a little bit, but I, I anticipate probably within the next decade that, that we'll see them kind of identified and, and targeted, um, unfortunately, uh, both by politicians and by communities that feel like they're losing resources as opposed to gaining the resources and, and the human capital that they might bring forward. You raised an interesting point that I was uh, thinking about, Paul, when you were talking, which is sort of the speed of migration, right? And because, and, and also thanks to Paul, who's putting in the chat, talking about, you know, in Fiji and other countries in the Pacific that are, um, you know, already migrating, right, or already changing their environment. And I think often, you know, you, you sort of have these more catastrophic events, you have, you know, a war in Ukraine and things like that, where it's a visible need for migration. But if you ask others sort of who are, you know, this, you know, somebody's environment in a country is changing over time, slowly over time, causing a slow migration, just this drip effect, you know, um, it's not as visible, you know, and I think that also starts to cause issues with the migration system itself and the legal structures we have, because that's a slow migration and not sort of a, you know, as you mentioned, like a, a humanitarian crisis all at one point where it's covered by the news, where we know there's a, a, an issue that needs to be addressed. So how do we sort of reconcile this issue of, say, slow migration with climate security and climate change versus large-scale catastrophic humanitarian migration? Sarah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, the, the problem is that we are, like in both cases, um, talking about individuals. And, um, and unfortunately, um, uh, um, as we know, there is a lot of attention uh, given to the catastrophic events, and on top of that, catastrophic events occurring in certain areas. So uh, the problem is that there is uh, a lot of overlook towards the slow migrations, the migration from certain countries to other, and also when there is a combination of reasons for, for migrations. So oftentimes we might see migrants uh, motivated by um, climate-related motivations, but also other underlying motivations that are also at the basis of that. So I believe that, as I mentioned earlier, there might be a better framework to address uh, these uh, massive movements. Much more research focused on that because it's also in the, in the hands of us as researchers, as scholars to identify and pointing out from where to where these migrations are occurring whether we have areas that are more or less affected, whether these migrations are in more internal or international, and also and ultimately, whether there is an opening or, or not of the receiving countries towards making these people safe once they emigrate. Because for the post-catastrophic kind of migrations, there is a lot of attention on making sure that there are processes, not only legal processes, but also, um, let's say, um, um, processes towards making them welcome in the communities where they go, uh, because you expect them to arrive. You expect, like, there are projections on how many people you are eventually 
um, receiving, expect to receive. The problem is that when we're talking about these lower uh, migrations, maybe it's in the number of just a few people emigrating from country A to country B. So there is no real process there ongoing to make sure that these people might find housing, might find work, like, and, and you know, like, also what we were discussing earlier this week, like how, how are we making sure that these people are feeling safe? Because there is a lot of like discussion also about the insecurity that then these people find after migrating. So they try to like, they use the migration as a sort of like adaptation measure. So where like they, they live where they feel vulnerable to go where they might, think they will be more resilient. But the problem is that oftentimes what happens is that they escape like an, an unsafe situation to find themselves in another unsafe situation, not because maybe climate change reasons, but because maybe they don't have access to, you know, schools for, for kids. They don't know the language. They, they don't have the resources um, because maybe they're lacking jobs. So I think that we have to consider a little bit more these uh, both legal and then practical process on how we can make sure that people that are part of these low migrations are welcomed in the communities they go, which doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Um, it's easy to say, much more difficult to do because of course the, the toll on the uh, receiving a uh, community is 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 important to take into consideration and then i will you know build back on what's important to do at the international level that there is like a concrete support even an economic financial support to receiving communities so that they can implement these processes and making sure that migrants feel safe where they go I think that's a great point about the communities. And actually, we'll turn into our, our question because that, I think that sort of directly um, aligns with what you're saying, Sarah. So um, can you speak to how mass migration and displacement is influencing local and national political tensions and how these impede communities' ability to prepare and respond to the climate impacts, which we're currently discussing now? So maybe, uh, Sarah, coming back to you and then Paul. Um, so how, because we, we raised the issue of the impact on communities. So what are some of the effects that we're seeing in terms of local and national, not only just resource allocation and sort of integration of, of migration or migrants, um, then what also about the political tensions? Yeah, um, so like, for example, uh, I'm a political scientist by background. So uh, it's very interesting when we look at uh, the uh, political tensions that might come from uh, um, from massive migrations, um, and this on two two levels. So on one hand, you might have political tension uh, just at the community level, but if we look at uh, like a broader um, kind of phenomenon, there might be also a geopolitical kind of tension. So. If we look at the southeast of Asia and the strategic importance of that area, then you have pretty much a great, great power competition ongoing over there because you have Australia, New Zealand that are actually framing uh, climate migrations as a matter of national security. Uh, and you have these huge um, changes in the demographics and the economic performance of small island states in an area that is of 
much interest for China or even the United States. All these things uh, play a role in the way in which uh, um, these uh, migration can have an impact on the receiving communities and how the receiving communities and so countries are perceived by the other powers in competition in the same area. So it's a much more complex phenomenon uh, that includes a lot of like geopolitics and a lot of like political tension. Um, and so I would say that this is something to, to keep in mind. And in the long term, like if I can just look at some, some kind of projections. I don't exclude something happening in the Caribbean as well, like in the Southeast Asia, because even in the Caribbean, we have several small island states, think about lesser Antilles, that are extremely um, exposed to climate change effects, especially sea level rise, increasing um, hurricanes coming from the hurricane uh, Atlantic season, so during that season. And so, like what is going to happen there? Like what will be eventually the repercussions for the United States uh, in terms of like, you know, political uh, relations and, and also management of these uh, massive migrations that can occur there? Uh, because as we mentioned, the United States are, frame, are starting to frame this issue as a matter of national security, but there is a lot of attention still on the domestic migrations because of you know the size of the country that allows for domestic migrations. But I think in the long term, we should start looking at how more the international one might also affect the United States based on what we are seeing in the Southeast Asia. And I turn to Paul that for sure has something to, to add. Yeah, Paul, over to you. Sure, um, I, I'll maybe start with an, an issue that, that Sarah had flagged that, that we see, and, and I believe Paul in the, the comments had, had flagged as well. Um, I, I think the, the Pacific Islands, in, in some part out of necessity, are, are several steps ahead of the rest of the world um, because they are, are, are feeling this in ways that much of us are just starting to. Um, and, and I think when, when we talked earlier about some of the challenges uh, of, uh, of, of the legal frameworks being in place, and um, there was a, a gentleman in the chat who'd asked about, you know, maybe shifting inland uh, in order to preserve coastal areas. Um, you know, th there are, are conversations and, and early agreements that have been brokered where the entire populations may be shifted from one location to the next. And while I think those have been done in, in, in good faith and with, you know, transparency about planning and, and things like that, there's obviously going to be huge issues around sovereignty uh, if and when that takes place, no matter how much goodwill is, is there, because the, the idea of, you know, completely picking up uh, a, a good part of a country, if not the entire country, and placing it right in the middle of another one, it's it's just not commonly done. Um, and, and so I think no matter how much advanced planning goes into that, uh, there, there will be distractions from that host uh, country in, in terms of really being able to, to deal with mitigation efforts, to deal with all of a sudden these new stressors that I'm sure they will be anticipating many, but, but cannot anticipate all. Another thing that I wanted to touch on briefly is, is to shift into um, what we see taking place in some really traditional parts of the world where uh, a lot of the farmer herder dynamics uh, 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 have been affected. And so as climate is shifting, it's, it's moving 
migration patterns that sometimes have existed for centuries, and those roots have been brokered through generations of agreements for um, access to land, to water resources, et cetera, of herds as they move throughout uh, some of these, uh, as the nomadic communities kind of take them forward. Uh, you can imagine if, if you're a farmer somewhere and, and all of a sudden uh, some of these nomadic peoples begin to come through your farm and the impact that that has uh, when this is the first time that that's ever happened. Uh, lots of security issues as it have erupted as that's taken place. Um, communities are, are shifting because of the, the new threats that they're experiencing. Uh, nations have, have begun to, to try and figure out how to deal with some of these security challenges. Uh, extremist networks have, have begun to infiltrate some of these groups too. And so uh, you, you have something that had been, you know, not always the most peaceful of, of, of uh, transitions as, as these communities moved about with their animals um, to, to really becoming a, a series of flashpoints in many countries. And I think that uh, almost all of that can be attributed to some of the early impacts of climate change really affecting on where uh, they can find, you know, grazing land for the animals, where they can find water, et cetera. And, and that just being something that instead of shifting over the course of, of generations, which is typically typically what, what's been happening in the past, you know, that, that's happened over the, the last you know, sometimes just a couple of years, I think generally at, at most over the last 10 years. And, and so those systems are really being strained at the community level up to the national level to figure out how to deal with that. I think it's a really interesting point, Paul. I mean, when we talk about sort of these best laid plans, maybe, I don't know. But if we're saying like, for example, that because it's really the loss of sort of almost a nation state, right? So it's basically like, especially in some of these smaller nations that will have to migrate. And it's a migration of, of culture, not just people and, and goods, but it's a migration of their entire sort of society. And when you talk about reintegration, I mean, most of the models that we've looked at in the post-conflict space, you know, it's very, very difficult to, to merge these things together. And then politically speaking and everything else, because when you start looking at separatist areas, it can grow into a sort of, even more conflict because you have sort of, it's not a homogenous sort of society anymore. Now you've have displaced an entire nation state. And then of course, you know, you get into this theoretical question of like, well, you know, they've lost everything. They've lost their, their lands, their, their culture, their migrating patterns, like you're talking about, especially with, you know, those more agricultural based societies and communities. And so that's really an interesting aspect that I don't think, you know, we're really prepared to try and address that because everything that, if we look at a post-conflict model and sort of the, the issues behind sort of the, the conflict in space, it's really, really difficult to address those key issues. And this is something that sort of doesn't have an answer because it's not organic. It's something you would be placing into another nation, which I think would just be a serious point of friction. But let's start, let's turn into the, the technology piece. And so we sort of have a question here because I think this is also interesting, especially when we're talking about infrastructure aspects as well. So we've centered on the idea, of course, this is really a political decision. It's a, it's a heavy investment of capital. We do want to be able to make these major shifts in our communities and, and move infrastructure, move things like airports or whatever the case is, and sort of mitigate the decisions of 50 years ago and, and facing new, you know, a, a changing climate and, and conditions. But when we're talking about engineering, because I think that's also going to be the impact of technology, we're going to say, well, we can just engineer our way out of this is going to be, I think, a very sort of common phrase we'll be hearing. 
what are sort of your thoughts of that when we talk about, you know, say nature-based solutions versus trying to engineer our societies to just be more resilient in the face of climate change? Sarah, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think there is a lot of discussion already ongoing, uh, and I'm going to be very specific here with, for example, um, using renewable energies or alternative sources of energies and how to design them, what's the impact on the environment of them. So here there's a lot of, let's say, discussion towards the fact that, uh, for example, when you promote solar energy. Of course, you're trying to promote a source of energy that is cleaner and might eventually in the long run contribute to the mitigation of climate change. The problem is that when you um, have to produce a solar panel, that itself might not be sustainable. For not mentioning when you have to dispose of it after the lifespan is uh, is gone. So there is a lot of like uh, um, discussion across disciplines towards how we can design better, produce more in a sustainable way, and eventually dispose of solar panels that so that we don't basically create more problems than the ones we are trying to solve. So that's just an example to for like a, a bigger kind of discussion. So how we make sure that the technologies that we uh, create and elaborate to mitigate climate change then are not a threat for the communities are meant to serve or the environment they're meant to, to save. And, and that's very similar also when it comes to offshore wind. So offshore wind can also be another example of something that is being created and elaborated in order to mitigate and use uh, mitigate the effects of climate change by using more clean energy but at the same time you have to consider the uh, effects that it might have on the ecosystems the marine ecosystems and whether these uh, alternative sources of energy are placed where they are needed the most. So this basically connects with the discussion of whether we should go more into like a technological versus natural kind of solution. Um, and I think here research play a key role in evaluating the pro and cons of, of both. I think that at a certain extent, we might have to rely on on technologies, technological advancement, but putting together um, the social science and the hard science, because without the evaluation on what kind of impact these technologies might really have on the environment and communities we try to help, we don't basically achieve, achieve the goal. Paul, what do you think about that? I really like the fact that Sarah was talking about systems. And I, I think um, to, to go back and, and talk about some of the solar panel challenges, um, you know, that that looks at, at community security all the way up to, to kind of um, geopolitical issues and challenges, because what, what we see taking place in, in some of the countries that have the minerals that are being used to, to produce the panels is that there is high degrees of instability um, through informal and formal mining uh, structures and in the communities that are affected by that. And there are um, at a minimum kind of geopolitical arm wrestling, if not things that are, are much more destabilizing taking place 
in order for for some of the great powers to have access to that and and to bring that into their um into their production facilities and so i think again going all the way back to one of the earlier points that was raised uh you know these supply chains um have have real security consequences that um that that sometimes we we discover as we're going forward and in, in trying to implement mitigating or prevention activities that sound great on paper but when we start to really implement them we, we find some of the challenges that that we might not have anticipated um i i think that if we're really looking at, at trying to find ways that we can build resilient communities we're going to not be able to rely solely on on technology um, some of that's going to be limited by the technology itself uh, some of that's going to be limited by the resources in order to be able to procure and and implement the technologies and 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 I think you know we, we also need to, to be able to recognize just that that we've got to be doing a lot of outside of the box thinking um again to to refer back and I, I promise it's not favoritism to to uh Paul who who's a former colleague of mine from when we were at Department of State together you know he he pointed out sure like maybe we we lose coastal uh communities but at the same time are there ways that we can kind of think about uh some some low resource requirements and and maybe there's even cost savings that could be achieved by having there be an increase in shipping as opposed to using road or, or rail networks that have been compromised and so there, there aren't huge tech requirements to be able to make those changes and and we've got you know the needs to to be able to to not the needs the, the means to be able to do that now um and so I, I think what we need to be doing is that you know on a, on a community by community basis to, to really look at, at what the resources are that are available to be able to project out into the future as to what the risks and the threats might be and then to, to be able to figure out how you can best strike that balance in order to serve the people I think a final thought sort of on that, on the technology piece. I mean, I was in a, a symposium last year and we talked about sort of, of course, in the in the framework of like military and defense security um, and, and the implementation of more green technologies, you know, more eco-friendly technology. And, and really the key takeaway that I had from this event was, you know, we're using the technology that we have today that's the best of what we we know, right? And so there's a there's obviously a knowledge and development gap to be able to implement the technology that we need to really have a sustainable effect. I mean, we're using aircraft and, and things like that from, you know, 40 years ago, right? And so we're not going to be able to turn just very rapidly and very quickly and changing and changing sort of our security and defense profile into more greener, more environmental, environmentally friendly technologies because it's just not there yet. So drawing from that sort of experience and looking at how can we change our communities through the use of technology it just seems like what exactly what you're talking about, Paul, which is really on a community by community basis. We have to measure, do we have the technology that will make a difference? Do we Can we actually forecast the changes that are coming? And then is there just a better alternative? Because in any sort of risk and hazard assessment and emergency management, you're always just saying, well, just remove yourself from that, that risk and hazard, right? Just remove yourself from that equation. And if you can just move inland for a couple of miles, right? Maybe that's just a better idea instead of trying to engineer something that is maybe not tested, maybe not tried, and is maybe not as sustainable as what we think it is because of all the other complex interdependencies and systems and everything else like that. And so I think that's something that is, um, you know, we really have to consider, and it's really just coming back down to that community level. And so I think just one more, um, just a quick sort of closing thought, Sarah, any quick thoughts that you might have in terms of closing, because we're reaching a, about to an hour here, and uh, 
So I just want to capture any quick thoughts. No, absolutely. Um, so no, I, I really think that we had a great discussion because we emphasize the, the importance of like keeping, uh, you know, an analysis at the broader perspective, but also looking at local communities. And I think that the more we look at the um, community's capacities to, uh, you know, face uh, all the changes in the weather patterns and um, resulting from climate change, I think we are on the right track. But I really, I really hope to see more attention given to different areas of the world. There is a lot of attention on what's going on somewhere, but very less somewhere else. Um, a lot of attention on sea level rise, much less on heat waves and other issues that are affecting other countries. So I, uh, my, you know, my, my final thought is to really, you know, encourage uh, both academics and practitioners to look at more the local level and look at uh, um, the local level, but not just in some areas of the world, but also um, many more. So I take the opportunity to thank you so much for, for organizing that. That was fantastic. And if anybody wants to keep the conversation going, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, have a website, so happy to, um, to, to hear from you and talk more anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Paul, over to you, any parting thoughts? And I think that um, it's pretty clear, both from the, the questions and comments and, and what was shared by the, the other panelists that there's massive challenges that we're facing today. I, I do think, um, you know, to, to look at, at technology as being, you know, a possible solution, it's appropriate and, and we need to be investing there. But I would also argue that we really need to be looking to understand at that local level, what is it that makes us resilient? And how can we bolster, um, whether it's strengthening areas of strength that are already there, um, or looking at, at what it is that makes a community resilient and, and seeing some shortcomings there and, and really trying to build that up. Because I think we're so um, oriented and, and focused on what are the problems and the challenges and how can we fix them as opposed to looking at what is it that works and how can we make it work better. Uh, and so, you know, to, to put a plug in, you know, for the title itself, like how, how can we look at communities, what it is that makes them resilient and allow them to, to, to grow and nurture that even further. Um, I, I uh, appreciate all the, the interaction with the, the, the good contributions and questions and thanks for pushing me to think a little bit more and thanks for the opportunity to share today. Uh, thanks for joining us, both Paul and Sarah and Patrick had to go a little bit early. Uh, but if you enjoyed the discussion today in terms of the roundtable, um, we basically, this is part of the community of practice within CBI and part of the programs we're going to be having every month is that we're going to be hosting these types of discussions with our colleagues from both, you know, the professional space and academia. And uh, so if you're interested in that uh, and there's something you want us to talk about, then certainly just let me know. You can email me and, um, you know, we'll certainly be in touch. But by, by all means, if you are in the audience still and you want to connect with Sarah or Paul Turner, you know, please do that. Continue the conversation. I think this is going to be important uh, for a very long time, and it's going to affect all of us in one way or, an or another. So, all right. Thank you very much, everybody. Really appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for joining us, and have a great day. See you. Bye-bye.